If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 655. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. If you are watching it on YouTube, click on that super thanks button underneath the video and throw a few pennies my way and keep the podcast free of charge. Also go to McClanahanAcademy.com. It's the best way to support the show. You can purchase several of my courses there. I've got over 20. And, of course, you get great content and you keep this podcast free of charge by buying a course or 20. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab while you're there. You can throw a few pennies my way. Click on the shop tab, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. As always, give me an email address when you're there. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook, the same title read by yours truly. And rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. Let me know what you want to hear. I enjoy doing that. And, of course, share the podcast around on social media. That way you spread the message. You get people doing what we want to do, which is get more involved in state and local politics. And, of course, we've got an uphill battle. And one of the things the left is really upset about right now is they can't win in the Supreme Court. It seems like the federal courts are just beating back their entire leftist agenda as we speak. And we've had, as I'm recording this, a new ruling come out. And this is an issue dealing with the separation, the so-called separation of church and state. Now, let's start with Justice Sotomayor's dissent. And I want to start with that, then I'm going to read an article about it. But I want to start with this because it's historically inaccurate, <laughs> at least partly. Okay, let, let me explain. So the decision in Carson v. Macon it was a six to three decision. There are three dissenting justices, all the leftists on the court, essentially. Um, and here is the here is her first statement, Sotomayor writing part of the dissent. She says, quote, This court continues to dismantle the wall of separation between church and state that the framers fought to build. The framers fought to build. Now, that would, ins- that would insinuate that the framers of the U.S. Constitution sought to separate, create a separation of church and state. That would be news to the framers. Because, you see, one of the most ardent Christians of all the framers was Roger Sherman of Connecticut, the old Atlas. Here is a man that firmly believed that religion and government should be tied together. I mean, you wouldn't find many people in the founding period that that were as religious as Sherman. Also, you can say Patrick Henry wasn't there. He didn't frame the Constitution. But Henry certainly believed that the state should be involved in religious instruction or paying you know, tithing to churches. I mean, Henry wanted that in Virginia. It's one of the reasons why uh, Jefferson and Madison were so adamant about creating a secularized state in Virginia because of men like Patrick Henry. But Roger Sherman argued against a Bill of Rights. He argued against a Bill of Rights because he said it was unnecessary. Why? Because there was nothing in the Constitution that allowed for the general government to interfere 
with religion, for example, or the press or speech. It was not there. So the framers were mute. They were silent on this issue. And according to the proponents of the Constitution, a Bill of Rights was unnecessary because the federal government had no power over this issue. Zero. That meant the states could do whatever they wanted. They could pay for they, they could force taxpayers to pay for religious instruction. They could force taxpayers to pay for churches. They could force taxpayers to pay for anything religious oriented they wanted to force the taxpayers to pay for. So when Sotomayor writes this in a Supreme Court opinion, it shows that she has no concept of American history. And yet, here she sits on the highest court in the United States. A concurrently high court, by the way, with the state courts. I will always argue that. The state Supreme Courts are just as prestigious as the U.S. Supreme Court. There's, there's, they're not less. Because states were supposed to handle a tremendous amount of the caseload. So if you were on a state Supreme Court like Spencer Rowan back in the 18th, 19th century, 19th century, you were uh, certainly as prestigious as any old Supreme Court justice. But Sotomayor writes a very bad opinion. And it's based on, essentially, the last 70 years or so of case law. You see, she's saying this is the framers fought to build? No, no, no. It should be this. Her statement should read like this. This court continues to dismantle the wall of separation between church and state that Hugo Black fought to build. And this is why I included Hugo Black in my book... How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, which you haven't gotten that one. You can get it for cheap now. I think you can find it for less than five bucks in many places. But I've also got a great class on that particular title at McClanahan Academy. You can pick that up there. But I included Hugo Black in that book because it was Black who essentially fabricated this lie that the central government was going to be involved in state issues like religion. And he's basing it on the 14th Amendment in incorporation, which is a faulty understanding of the 14th Amendment, which I get into in the book. I talk about incorporation there. This is the idea that the Bill of Rights are somehow somehow applied to the states, right? They're incorporated against the states. So they're incorporated into the state constitutions. It's the best way to put it. Um, so, But the state constitutions already had Bill of Rights, right? This is what Roger Sherman was arguing against a Bill of Rights for the federal government. He said, look, what do we need a Bill of Rights for. It's going to do two things. Number one, it's going to undermine the state constitutions because if we do that, right, we already have state constitutions. State constitutions already protect our civil liberties. And number two, the most important argument that he could make is that it's going to assume, people are going to assume that the general government had these powers if we didn't provide a Bill of Rights. His point was the general government never had these powers, and so if we don't add it, they don't have these powers. You can't assume any of these things. Now, he wasn't interested in incorporating the Bill of Rights against the states, but it was just another, another level there that didn't matter. The states already protected so many civil liberties in America, they didn't need another layer of a Bill of Rights because if the Constitution didn't say the federal government could do it, they couldn't do it. It didn't say anything about regulating speech or the press or religion. They have no power to do it. It's zero power. So there's no wall of separation between church and state with the framers. Now, you can talk about the founding generation. You could say Jefferson, who wasn't a framer, by the way, wasn't even a ratifier. You could talk about Jefferson, 
Madison would be a framer and a ratifier. So Madison is, of course, important. And Madison did write and participate with Jefferson in uh, blocking establishment of religion in the state of Virginia. But this is at the state level. Even the very famous letter that Jefferson's involved with the Danbury Baptists, where the Danbury Baptists of Connecticut write him and say, you know what, I know, they actually said this in the letter, I, and I'm paraphrasing, the national government can't do anything about this, but we really wish we could have a separation of church and state in Connecticut. Why were they writing that in 1802? Because there was a state-established church in Connecticut. Baptists weren't really allowed to do much of anything in Connecticut. They were being blocked by the state. And so Jefferson writes back and says, yeah, that'd be a good thing. Maybe one day everyone will believe in this. But he didn't say, you know what we need to do? He's, he's president of the United States at this point. He didn't say, you know what we need to do? We need to go in and we need to have some federal law that would knock down this law, that make you give, give you religious freedom and toleration in Connecticut. No, no. That was just, well, good luck, basically, was his response. Good luck on this one. I agree with you, but good luck. Right, that was it. Good luck, Danbury Baptist, in getting religious freedom in Connecticut because Jefferson knew, eh, probably not going to happen right now. Right, So this is the problem with this entire leftist argument. It's based on a house of cards, and they know it. The entire leftist agenda is based on lies. It's based on the lie of incorporation. It's based on the fabrication of rights that don't exist in the Constitution. It's based on the fabrication of powers that don't exist in the Constitution. It's based on a distortion of federalism. It's based on an entire house of cards. And as the court, if it does the right thing, begins to dismantle all this stuff and the entire leftist agenda tumbles to the ground, which it should, the lefties are going to get really mad. And when I say they're going to get really mad, the left is the most dangerous political group in the history of the world. Left-wingers are the most violent and dangerous people in the history of the world. You look at major revolutions in the world, they all come from the left. You talk about the communist revolution of Russia, the left. The communist revolution in China, the left. The French Revolution, the left. The revolutions of 1848, the left. Rarely do you find a right-wing revolution in the world. Even, you know, the Nazis, they're leftists. They're progressives. Mussolini was a progressive, using the language of conservatism at time to get what he wanted saying, you know, realizing the culture of Italy was generally conservative, but he was a technocrat. He was a progressive. He was a leftist. This is what these people are. The Mexican Revolution, left wing. Haitian Revolution, left wing. All of the lefties are violent. And so when the lefties stop getting what they want, they're telegraphing it. They're blaming it on the right. You know what's coming? Civil war. If the right gets this, is civil war. They're going to push civil war. No, no, no. You know who's pushing civil war? The left. The left is pushing this stuff because they're getting upset that they can't use the government, which is their work. It's their church, right? The government is their church. They can't use their church to manipulate the rest of the population and get what they want anymore. Because Americans generally are starting to see, you know what? This entire woke agenda is stupid. The entire leftist agenda is resulting in decaying cities and crime and inflation and everything else. They're starting to see it. All the leftist policies are right before their eyes. And they can't ignore it and deny it anymore. And I mean, even people that aren't you know, very political are starting to see, hey, you know, Portland, it, it's pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, you've got people just passed out in the streets from doing horrible things. 
It, it looks like a third world country. L- LA, third world country. It's pretty bad. And what do we have in these places? You've got murders up in cities. This is this is the same kind of climate that we had in 1968. You have to remember 1968. People on people could see the violence on TV. This is where Nixon, you know, came up with the silent majority. The silent majority. People that don't protest, they're not going and standing in front of the Supreme Court and looking like a bunch of fools. They're not going out and doing all the stupid things. But they know, they see what's happening. They're the silent majority. They see what's happening. They see what the left really is. They don't want their kids around all the woke stuff and all the stuff that's going on right now in the schools. They don't really want that. They don't don't really like that very much. Uh, they uh, They don't like inflation. They don't like the leftist agenda. They don't like it. And so they see it and they vote against it generally, and at the state level, they vote against it even more, and the left can't stand this, which is why they want the Supreme Court to knock all this stuff down, because they realize they lose. If this, if they really believed in democracy, you know what happens? They lose. If they really believed in, in democracy at the local and state level, they lose almost every single time. The only way they can get what they want is if you if you pile California, if you make California overwhelm everything else in the United States, and then you get it from the center, and then they win, right? Because, oh, well, the center's supreme. This is the real danger of the Constitution. It's why there were people against it, because they, they could see some of this stuff happening. They didn't want it. But, of course, this is what we have. So Sotomayor's dissent, and that part of it, is just completely preposterous. And then, of course, later on in dissent, let me read another section of this, because it's so... Ridiculous. Uh, It's down and I have to get to it. Um, She says, Finally, the court's decision is especially perverse because the benefited issue is the public education to which all of Maine's children are entitled under the state constitution. As this court has long recognized, the Establishment Clause requires that public education be secular and neutral as to religion. As this court has long recognized. But is that the history of the United States? And when she says long recognized, you're talking about since the 1940s. And really since the 1960s. So within, you know, say 50 to 80 years is all we're talking about here. 50 to 80 years. Well, that's not an insignificant amount of time. But when you look at the United States history, that's much less than, uh, you know, what we're talking about with the entirety of U.S. history. So the court has said this, but is that really what the founding generation wanted? Is that really what the American public in the states, the people of the states, is that really what they wanted? Or was this just the court legislating from the bench, which is what they tended to do? And again, this is Hugo Black. Hugo Black's position is ahistorical. But now you've got all these people, Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, all these, and of course we're going to have you know, Justice Jackson, you're going to have all these, ja- all these judges that have been indoctrinated into this stuff, and they think, this is it. This is, this is what the, the court is supposed to do these things. This is the court. So there's a court. We can follow court. Court law, case law, blah, blah, blah. It's ridiculous. And so you have, this gets now codified. This, this dissent is now public record, and people can go back and say, well, we can cite this dissent now. Because you see courts change. Right now, it's a 6-3 to three majority for the so, so-called conservatives, and they're going to they're gonna do some things. And I think Roe v. Wade is going to fall, and there's some other things going to happen. But 
there's no guarantee. I mean, look, Clarence Thomas is, is getting elderly. I mean, the, the conservatives on the court are, uh, are not spring chickens. And so what happens when those guys retire or die? If we don't, if there's no Republican president, well, then the Democrats get to put somebody else on there, a left winger. They get to do to the to the uh, Republicans what the Republicans did to them, which was you know replacing replacing a Ruth Bader Ginsburg with uh, Amy Coney Barrett, which you know you go from one ideological spectrum to the other supposedly, and so they would do it too. If 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 Clarence Thomas would uh, would retire tomorrow, right? We're not going to say the horrible thing there, but if he retired tomorrow, and said, "Look, I'm out. I don't feel like doing this anymore. I'm going home." Joe Biden would replace him with somebody so left. It would be a five to four court again. It would happen, or if something happened to Roberts or Alito or any of them, you know, K, uh, any of the any of the uh, judges on the court that are so called conservatives, Gorsuch, uh, Kavanaugh, Barrett, any of them, if anything happened to any of those six judges, Biden would certainly put a, a leftist activist on the court. And of course, the left is very open about wanting to pack the court. They want to replace, they want to add judges because they know what's at stake here. And that is they don't win unless they have the court in their back pocket. It's how they've always gotten things done. Even if the decisions are bad historically, even if the decisions are not based on anything that would be considered the Constitution, it's just opinion or something else. But it doesn't matter because they win when they do it now. Um, I want to talk about this piece briefly that was at NBC News by Pete Williams. And it gets into this a little bit. It kind of explains what, what the decision was here in the court. And then I'll go back and reference this back to Hugo Black for a second. But the title is Supreme Court OK's Use of Public Money for Religious Education. The Supreme Court Tuesday ruled that state programs providing money for public school tuition cannot exclude schools that offer religious instruction. Now, first of all, this is only in Maine. So this is the thing about the courts, too. And this was brought up even in the 19th century. Well, if the court rules on an issue for Maine, does that apply to every other state? Uh, or not. Now, of course, in the 19th century... There was an argument, well, it doesn't. It applies to Maine, or it applies to this state, or that state. It doesn't apply to every state, just to that state. But now we think, well, the court now has ruled, and no states can do this. And that's also the worship of the Supreme Court as well. The piece continues, the decision relaxed long-standing restrictions on using taxpayer money to pay for religious education, further lowering the wall of separation between church and state. Further lowering the wall, that's almost... That's almost verbatim from, from Sotomayor. This is coming from NBC News, right? The vote was 6-3 to three with Justices Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, and Sonia Sotomayor dissenting. At issue was a state program in Maine that made taxpayer money available to families who live in remote areas without public high schools. Under the state law, they could use the money for their children's tuition at public or private schools and other communities, but not for sectarian schools, defined as those that promote a particular faith or belief system and teach material through the lens of the faith. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts said Maine's program promotes stricter separation of church and state than the federal constitution requires. Now, again, the federal constitution doesn't require any of this at the state level, 14th Amendment notwithstanding, because the 14th Amendment was not, re not intended to do this. Again, and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, I go through this very briefly. Another very good book on this is Raoul Berger's Government by Judiciary, where he blasts apart the, the idea that the 14th Amendment somehow incorporated the Bill of Rights. 
So you need to get How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America for a very brief summary of this. And then, of course, you could get uh, the Burger book. Also, another good book is Kevin Goodsman's The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution. It's a good one. Very fun to read, easy to read, and it's readily available. And he gets into blasting apart incorporation as well. The tuition program is not neutral, he said, because, quote, the state pays tuition for certain students at private schools so long as the schools are not religious. This is discrimination against religion. He also noted that the state money does not go directly to his schools but flows through the independent choices of private benefit recipients. So the money is sent to the families and then they use the money however they want to for, for education. In a way, I mean, this is the bigger issue here is should the state be paying for public education? And if you pay into public education, should you be able to use it for whatever you want to use it for? If you're a taxpayer, should you not be able to use it for a private school, for a home school, for whatever you want in any private school? you It's your money. You should get out. If, if every child in your state, say, gets $1,000, you should be able to get that money no matter what. It's your money. You paid it in. You should be able to use that money in whatever education you want for your child. Whether you want to send them to the public school, whether you want to send them to a private school, whether you want to homeschool them, you should get that money back. Because it's yours. If you don't send them to the public school where the school gets it, you should be able to get that money. This is a voucher system, I mean, basically what I'm talking about here. But see, the left doesn't like this because they think it's going to pull money out of public schools and put it into private schools. And those are for the rich people. And the public schools are going to suffer. I mean, this is the great argument coming from people that uh, you know, the public schools will suffer because they won't have the kind of funding. And But the real fear is this. For every student that a public school loses, they lose money. They lose money. And so um, if, if they don't have students going there because their schools stink, because they're violent, because their education is terrible, whatever it is in your, in your area, not all public schools are bad. Right? There are some good public schools. But um, if your public school stinks and it's not someplace people want to send their students to, their, their children, and they want to send them somewhere else, well, then that, that, those teachers, they lose their power. They lose their money. They can't, they can't have all the money to do all the stupid stuff that nobody's paying attention to anyways. The piece continues, two years ago in a case from Montana, the court ruled that when states make tuition money generally available, they cannot exclude schools that are run by religious institutions. That have, in other words, a religious status. But that decision left unresolved the issue of whether it, would make, whether it would matter if the schools actually offered religious instruction. The court has now answered that question, saying it doesn't matter. So, again, a couple of years ago, and there's actually a link to it in the piece that I'm reading, where the court said, well, you can't do this. You can't deny uh, state money to schools that have a religious basis. Now, if they're offering religious instruction, we didn't we didn't deal with that. But just because they're they're founded by a church or some religious group, I mean, it doesn't matter. Um, so the question, I mean, look, if you pay into the pro, if you pay into the state, you pay state taxes. If you have a house, of course, you're going to. If you if you own a home, but even if you just pay, you know, sales tax at your state or whatever, you, you get your license plate. Buy a lottery ticket in many states. You're paying into the education system there. So you should have some type of recourse if you don't want to send your kids to the public school. It's mandatory that they have to go to school. So shouldn't it, if you pay in the taxpayer money, you should get that money back. The, the bigger question is, should we have state funding of schools? That's the biggest issue here. Should we have state funding of schools beyond, say, primary schools? I mean, this is what Jefferson was looking at. 
um, maybe tech schools or something, but you know, job training. But beyond primary schools, should we have that? Or should there be some, I mean, should you just be able to do whatever you want? You get money, you send your kids wherever you want. Justice Sonia Sotomayor said in a separate dissent that she feared the court's early decisions were leading us to a place where separation of church and state is a constitutional slogan, not a constitutional commitment. Today, the court leads us to a place where separation of church and state becomes a constitutional violation. Again, ahistorical. It's not a constitutional slogan at all. Or it, it's, uh, I'm sorry, it, I, I, let, me, let me rephrase that. It's, um, it is a slogan, but it never has been a commitment because it's a slogan that's not in the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that says separation of church and state. A wall of separation. But that's not what's in the Constitution. Separation of church and state becomes a constitutional violation. Well, I mean, again, that language is not even in the Constitution. It is just a fabricated slogan. Justice Stephen Breyer, writing for himself and Justice Kagan, cited what he called an increased risk of religiously-based social conflict when government promotes religion in the public school system. The case came to the court after two sets of parents in Maine sued, claiming the tuition program violated their religious freedom. David and Amy Carson sent their daughter to Bangor Christian School and were therefore not able to receive the state tuition money. I like to view it as a continuation of the values and the way that we raised her at the house, Amy Carson said in an NBC News interview. The beliefs that the school has are aligned with what we have at the home. Troy and Angela Nelson sent their children to a non-sectarian school but wanted to attend Temple Academy, which describes its purpose as to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to make him known through accredited academic excellence and programs presented through our thoroughly Christian biblical worldview. In defending the program, the state said it offers a free public education, but with but that the families who filed the suit wanted an entirely different benefit, a publicly subsidized religious education. Maine said it had decided that a public education should be a non-sectarian one that exposes children to diverse viewpoints, promotes tolerance and acceptance, teaches academic subjects in a religiously neutral manner, and does not promote a particular faith. Now, this is you're creating a false dichotomy there in that a religious education wouldn't expose children to diverse viewpoints because it usually does, wouldn't promote tolerance and acceptance, there's nothing more tolerant than Christianity in so many ways. I mean, the only reason we have what we have in the West is because Christians are very tolerant people. I'd like to see you, uh, you know, have a... We're just talking about Christianity. I mean, is there this kind of tolerance in Saudi Arabia? How about Iran? Any kind of tolerance there? So, yeah, I mean, Christianity provides tolerance. Peace says parents were free to send their children to religious schools, it argued, but the state was not required to support them. The Biden administration supported Maine's position, saying the state was not playing favorites among various religious entities. That was a switch from the view of the Department of Justice took in the early stages of the case during the Trump administration when it said the state was engaged in religious discrimination. So, again, who's in office, what presence in office, and the Justice Department often matters and how these things are going to be interpreted. Same thing with the court. The real issue is, does the federal court have the authority at all to do any of this, even with the 14th Amendment? The real issue is we need to undo Hugo Black's stupid interpretation of the 14th Amendment, bring it back to the real interpretation of the amendment, and a lot of this stuff would just go away. There would be no standing. 
to sue in federal court or have this even be a federal issue. Now, you can say, well, but wait a second here. If that happened, those people, Maine would have won. Maine would have won in this particular case. Yes, I'm aware. Maine would have won here. But it would have been a larger victory for federalism because you know what would have happened? Other states could... uh, could have a situation where they're much more to the other side. And of course, these people from Maine can always vote with their feet. I know it's tough. It's, it's hard to move. It's hard to leave. You got to think. I mean, there's lots of things going on there. But people could start trying to find places to live that better reflect their communities and better reflect their worldview. And I think that's something we often miss in this. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.